0: Last month, the Women's World Cup ended with truly remarkable results, a victory from Spain. This team was in the headlines before the tournament began because their 12 best players were on strike and refused to play until their demands for better working conditions and pay were met. Much like the battle the US women's team had been fighting for decades. Needless to say, the Spanish team showed up to compete in the tournament that showed up to compete in the tournament was an underdog. And yet, they just kept winning. If you're not a soccer fan or didn't make the effort to record the games that were broadcast at 3 a.m. local time, You may have only heard that the US women's team did not win as they were projected to do. But the tournament itself was riveting. A huge part of why the US didn't win was because women's soccer has become an international sensation in the last few decades. The games were extraordinarily competitive with many ending in a shootout. Against all the odds, the Spanish team beat England in the final match with remarkable dominance. It was an epic tale of a successful underdog and a huge win for women on the world stage. And somehow, that's not what anyone is talking about. The only headlines that remain are about two men who acted inappropriately and have since been fired from the Spanish Football Federation. The whole chain of events is a lesson in the ways that power corrupts, the prevalence of culturally dominant narratives, the influence of the media, and the many ways in which poorly managed conflict can have outsized influence. It's a train wreck. I want to offer a counterexample One which I hope demonstrates the power of honest conflict, as is mentioned in our gospel text this morning. The president of the House of Deputies of the Episcopal Church, which is the equivalent of our Congress in the national church governance structure, hang with me, recently published a pastoral letter to the Episcopal Church. In it, she states that she experienced an incident of unwanted and non-consensual physical contact. I was physically overpowered and lost bodily autonomy by a retired bishop waiting for my arrival to greet our colleagues in the House of Bishops. This, along with some accompanying inappropriate verbal statements, compelled me to submit a Title IV complaint via my chancellor, meaning an inappropriate act happened, and she followed through with the appropriate action as designed by the church to keep everyone safe. What followed was a deeply disappointing 13-month process in which the bishop was excused from the disciplinary process and issued only a pastoral response, meaning he was not held accountable for his actions. This is not the part that I'm lifting up as a counterexample. (laughs) Hang with me, because there's hope in this story. The church at large only found out about all of this when she wrote a profoundly courageous and vulnerable letter calling for a renewed commitment for the well-being of all of God's people. In it, she outlines the thoughtful ways in which she started by addressing the individual, then gradually widening the circle, asking for more care and support, much like Jesus outlines in the text today. She asks difficult questions of the institution and calls on us to do better as the body of Christ. Presiding Bishop Michael Curry wrote a thoughtful response grounded in the scriptural foundation of our commitment to wholeness and reconciliation. Truthfully, I I wish none of this had happened and that this issue didn't warrant the topic of conversation in the church, in women's soccer, or in society more generally. And yet this is not the first or the last time we will face these issues. The good news this morning is that there is a grace-filled way that we are called on to address conflict, and the church is exactly the place where we should be learning how to do this work well, despite the fact that we don't always get it right. We begin with a willingness to have the conversation. Now, I confess, I get a little too excited about this particular passage because I am not afraid of conflict, as my long-suffering family members know well. But I'm not making this stuff up. It's right here in Matthew's Gospel, an outline for how we are to handle conflict. Any illusions one might have had that we should all get along because we are the church need look no further. The nature of our commitment to one another in community means that things are going to get messy, and that's okay, so long as we don't lose sight of how Jesus wants us to work through it all. By way of context, Matthew's gospel is the only one of the four to use the word ecclesia, which means church, at any point in the gospel text. It was written when the church, as we know it, had not yet fully formed. Jesus was speaking to, and the author has kept intact, Jesus' concern for a community that did not yet exist. This signifies that the wholeness of the church, not just the individual members, but the integrity of the collective mattered a great deal to keeping Jesus' mission intact. What Jesus points towards is a process in which justice is synonymous with reconciliation of the whole body of Christ. The topic of conflict poses the danger that we will only hear or read exactly what fulfills our expectations about a person or a process. This passage from Matthew represents a tension between what we expect to find and what we actually find. The opening invocation to go and point out may seem like an invitation to find the one against whom we have a grievance and make our complaints known. That's not actually what the text says. Jesus is saying we can trust other members of the church who are equally committed to this mission of wholeness, that they will in good time seek us out when a wrong has been committed. This benefit of the doubt is far beyond the grace that we normally expend, extend to one another, especially when we have been wronged. But in the context of commitment to a larger mission, it's the only thing that makes sense. The gradual widening of the scope of the conversation that Jesus mentions may feel like an opportunity to advocate for justice on an ever larger stage. But look again. There's no mechanism for reliance on an outside neutral party or savior figure who is going to deliver a final word of fairness. Instead, each step of the process Jesus mentions involves intentional, face-to-face conversation with people who are known to one another in community. There is a beautiful and difficult combining of that which is pragmatic and faithful. It is in this spirit that I received the letter from the president of the House of Deputies where she outlines the steps she took to resolve the issue only involving the whole in the conversation when essential for the flourishing of our communal health. And then comes this bit about a member who refuses to listen, being written off as a gentile or a tax collector. I think we often hear this as Jesus dismissing those who don't fall into line and behave as directed. They're out, is what we hear. But that would be out of character for Jesus, and actually to miss the whole point of the passage. Jesus is justifying why those individuals will need even more of our directed attention. The entire thrust of Matthew's gospel is a gradual widening of the circle to say the Gentiles and the tax collectors and those whom you think are beyond your reach are actually why I have come in the first place. Discipleship and ministry are always missional, meaning anything we do in the name of God's love, anything we do in relationship with one another is a part of the whole of God's narrative. To see it as anything otherwise is to have lost track of the main plot. So when things go sideways, when a conflict disrupts or the disciplinary process fails to work as designed, it's an opportunity for us to thoughtfully reevaluate our motivations. It's always an opportunity for us to enter deeper into relationship, moving closer and closer together, not further apart. I know I lost some of you a long time ago when I mentioned the word conflict, so tune back in if you're somewhere else. Conflict at its core is never actually about winning and losing. It's frequently not about the issue we think we're fighting about. Or, as theologian Andrew McGowan puts it, separation and expulsion have certainly been a usual way of thinking about this passage. But this is less because of the text itself and because separation and expulsion are perennial temptations for human beings as ways to solve problems. And sometimes we dress them up in theological language. Conflict, at least when we're dealing in kingdom language, is about wholeness for the whole church and ultimately for God's kingdom. The church is the perfect place for us to work out how to go about this business of dealing with conflict, conflict well, because Jesus orients us towards reconciliation. The mission of God makes no, made known in Jesus is to be reconciled to God, one another, and creation. This provocative passage from Matthew about a church that did not exist Was envisioned by Jesus for a different kind of future with boundaries that had dramatically shifted. One of the most helpful questions we can ask when doing this holy work of entering into conflict is Help me understand. Perhaps this also is the perfect grounding place for our prayers as we continue about this holy and hard work of being community. Lord, Help me understand. Amen.